This People's Pharmacy Podcast is brought to you in part by Valisure, the pharmacy that checks. Approximately 80% of all drugs are produced in factories in China and India. Valisure is the first and only online pharmacy that chemically analyzes every batch of every medication it sells at no additional cost to consumers. When you order online from Valisure.com, you receive medicine that Valisure has tested in their own analytical laboratory, shipped right to your door. And each medication or supplement from Valisure arrives with its own certificate of analysis, so you'll know you are getting the medicine your doctor ordered. Become a Valisure customer and receive no-charge shipping on your first order with the discount code PEOPLE. That's P-E-O-P-L-E, all uppercase, people, for no-charge shipping. Remember to visit Valisure.com, the pharmacy that checks. Humans have prized sweet tastes from before recorded history. Easy access to sugary beverages may undermine health. This is The People's Pharmacy with Terry and Joe Graydon. What happens when people no longer have easy access to sodas? Does it change their metabolism? How can people overcome their soft drink habit? How does sugar impact the brain? Can sweet treats and sodas interfere with children's ability to make good decisions? You might be surprised how much sugar you actually consume in a day. We'll find out how to get our brains back in balance. Coming up on The People's Pharmacy, Drs. David and Austin Perlmutter talk about their new book, Brainwash. In The People's Pharmacy Health Headlines, it's no wonder that people around the globe are confused about the coronavirus. Public health organizations like the CDC and WHO have given conflicting messages and changed their recommendations frequently. Initially, both agencies insisted that the general public did not need to wear face masks. Then the CDC reversed. This week, the World Health Organization followed suit. WHO also did a flip-flop on the question of asymptomatic viral transmission. One of its experts suggested that people without symptoms rarely spread the infection. The very next day, however, she had to reverse that position, admitting that people without symptoms can indeed spread COVID-19. We just don't know how often that happens. There's still a great deal of uncertainty surrounding the virus. We do know that it's highly contagious and that masks, distance, and hand washing help reduce transmission. Older people take the most medicines, perhaps because they have more chronic conditions than younger folks. But a study from Australia suggests that when senior citizens take inappropriate medicines, billions of dollars are wasted and people may be harmed. A clinical pharmacist estimates that the average older Australian takes six medicines daily. One of those six is either unnecessary or contraindicated. About 20% of the bill for prescriptions is for inappropriate medications such as antipsychotics. Deprescribing is not easy, however. Drug companies have not done studies on safe ways to take people off medicines they don't need. Viagra is the widely recognized brand name for the erectile dysfunction drug sildenafil. Doctors treating men with this disorder may also prescribe other drugs, tadalafil and vardenafil. They all work by inhibiting an enzyme called phosphodiesterase 5A, or PDE5A for short. Now, researchers have tested Tadalafil and Vardenafil to treat osteoporosis in mice. PDE5A is also found in bone-building cells called osteoblasts. Blocking the enzyme can improve the osteoblast's productivity and improve bone formation. While this research was conducted in mice, the scientists imagine it may one day be possible for doctors to treat aging men with the same drug to strengthen their bones and improve their sex lives. Scientists have established that the pattern of intestinal microbes differs between people of normal weight and those who are obese. They don't know if you can change your intestinal microbiota by changing your diet 
or losing weight. The results of a year-long study of dieters suggest that the microbiota is extremely resilient. The investigators studied microbial diversity among 49 participants in a randomized controlled trial testing healthy, low-carb against healthy, low-fat diets. Within the first three months of the study, there were noticeable changes in the types of microbes found. However, by the end of the year, most volunteers' microbiota had mostly reverted to its initial condition. That was a surprise, because the participants continued to follow their assigned diets and lose weight for the rest of the study. The researchers conclude, quote, Microbiota resilience may need to be overcome for long-term alterations to human physiology. At a time when most people want their immune systems to be functioning optimally, research indicates that many Americans are not getting adequate levels of nutrients needed for immune function. The investigators used data from the 2005 to 2016 National Health and Nutrition Examination Surveys. Four out of five key nutrients were at low levels. 45% of U.S. adults were not getting adequate vitamin A. 46% were not getting adequate vitamin C. Vitamin D inadequacy was up to 95%. In addition, the researchers found that 84% of adults got too little vitamin E and 15% were low in zinc. People who took vitamin pills were less likely to fall short than those relying on food alone. And that's the health news from the People's Pharmacy this week. Welcome to the People's Pharmacy. I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. Americans have had a long love affair with sugary soft drinks. Commercials once claimed that Coca-Cola lifts your spirits and boosts your energy. The jingle closed with, things go better with Coke. But although Coke is iconic, it's certainly not the only soft drink on the market. And let's not forget that fruit juice also contains quite a bit of sugar. In recent years, nutrition experts have noted that sugary beverages can have negative health consequences. To learn how sugar affects our bodies, we turn to Dr. Alyssa Eppel. She's a professor in the Department of Psychiatry at the University of California, San Francisco. She's the director of the Aging, Metabolism, and Emotion Center and the Consortium for Obesity Assessment, Study, and Treatment. Dr. Eppel is also associate director of the Center for Health and Community. Welcome back to the People's Pharmacy, Dr. Alyssa Apple. Terry and Joe, I'm so happy to be on your show today and, and talk about this new study, which we think is so important. Now, I have to tell you, Dr. Apple, several years ago, we watched a video of one of your colleagues at UCSF, Dr. Robert Lustig, talking about sugar, and we were just spellbound. And we just wondered, well, well, where's the data? And then along came your study, 2014, in the American Journal of Public Health. And, you know, you did some really interesting work on telomeres. And we'd love for you to give us a quick summary of what that revealed. But basically, I think you began to suspect that there was a pathway from soda to disease and that high sugar intake could have some pretty substantial impacts on our health. So give us a little snapshot of the history and then how you set up this new research and what you found. Okay. So we have for a long time had very strong intuitions from different data sets that liquid sugar is worse than just eating sugary food. Drinking sugar causes a huge metabolic response immediately, high insulin, high glucose that hits the brain quickly. So in a sense, when you drink sugar, you're getting, it's almost like a drug to the brain that you get much more quickly than when you eat. So similar to how cocaine is a very addictive drug, but you don't have the peak 
effect for 10 minutes. But if you have crack and you're inhaling it, I'm sorry, if you're smoking, you're getting it even more quickly to the brain, and it's much more addictive. That's how we think of soda. That's how we think of sugared soda. So in that first study you mentioned, we were looking to see what beverages would be associated with the shortest telomeres. And telomeres are one of these indexes of how quickly our cells are aging. And so sugared soda came out to be associated with shorter telomeres, and diet soda did not, and juice did not. So in this current study, we really targeted reduction of drinking sugared soda or any sugary drinks, and we wanted to see if that would improve people's waistline within a year. Now, you were able to take advantage of a natural experiment, right? Right. So we at UCSF, my colleague Laura Schmidt, Rob Lustig, we have been pained by our health university serving people who come here to, to seek wellness, to heal, serving them sugared soda. And so the administration was educated on the effects of sugared soda and sugary drinks, and they banned it from every campus and hospital that we have. And we had to jump in once they decided to do this. We jumped in very quickly because it was, as you said, a natural experiment where this um, sugary beverage ban was happening on a certain date, and all of the vendors had stopped buying these sugary drinks and had replacements like flavored water. And so we had to move very quickly. And we interviewed as many heavy drinkers as we could in the short period we had of several months, people who were drinking at least one a day. And one thing about that sample that became very clear is whether you are thin or obese, if you are drinking one a day, you are very likely pre-diabetic. We found that. How did you measure that? We were looking at the fasting insulin and glucose. Now, of course, the heavier people had worse levels, but we even found very poor insulin sensitivity in the lean people who were drinking one a day. So that was at baseline. Well, wait a sec, because this idea of what we call insulin resistance is a little mysterious to people. And in essence, that's what you were finding. Why is that such an important marker? And what are the long-term consequences? So we are very fixated on weight in our society and what's on the scale. But what the part of the reason that weight is bad for health, diabetes, heart disease, dementia, is because it is a risk factor for triggering this dysregulated metabolism, this higher, this inability to keep our insulin low. So our cells don't respond to the insulin as well, and we need much more of it in order to absorb the sugars. So our sugars get high and stay high, and our insulin stays high. And we also have this problem in our brain that our brain is also not responding to insulin well. And so we need much more insulin to do its job. So insulin resistance is at the core of many diseases of aging. It is what we should be measuring instead of weight. So thank you for that explanation. And now here's this experiment. And there are people who probably drink a lot more than just one soft drink a day. How did you help them overcome their habit? Because after all, if you're drinking two or three or more soft drinks a day, it it has almost become a habit. So my colleague, Laura Schmidt, who's in public health, was very excited about the idea of just a sales ban, just ridding that easy access to buying a Coke during the day while you're at work. And for me, as a clinically trained psychologist who has studied food addiction, I was absolutely convinced that it wouldn't help many people and that we needed to also provide some a motivational boost, a, a kind of a, a brief interview to explain to people so they really understand what sugar's doing to them and why they should care. And the question about why they should care is very different for everyone. We helped them find their motivation. It wasn't just 
because of weight or because of disease risk, but it was different for different people. So we, we did this study where everyone had the sales ban and half the people had this brief counseling to help them get in touch with their priorities and, and values for their own health. And what we found was that everyone had a reduction in their waist circumference, their amount of abdominal fat. On average, that went down significantly two centimeters. Now, that is so exciting. That was our primary outcome because abdominal fat is a very close proxy for that insulin-resistant state we've been talking about. Having excessive visceral fat creates that insulin resistance state. So not necessarily the weight on the scale, not your BMI or weight, but where you carry your weight is a very big clue to your metabolic health. And that was what improved in, in on average. The people who got the, the boost, the motivational boost, they drank even less. So that was very important for certain people. So, Dr. Apple, let me back up for just a second. So you you had a group of people, you talked to them and did some uh, measures on their metabolism before the vending machine ban went into effect. And then the vending machine stopped selling soda and they started selling water and things like that, non-sugared drinks. What happened to the people who were just not getting the extra um, intervention, who were just uh, going through day by day? They reduced the amount of sugared beverages they drink each day by around eight ounces. So it helped them. It was amazing that it helped them. It's such a simple intervention. It's such low-hanging fruit for any institution or school. They also had um, some education. They had a video by Rob Lustig, on the on processed foods and the effects of sugar. And so when we examined where they were getting their sugary drinks, we assumed that they would have the same amount at home but just drink less at work. And what we found is they reduced everywhere. They reduced how much they were drinking equally at home and at work. And we think that part of it is the education they received. Dr. Apple, what does the beverage industry think of your research? They say that a, a sales ban is unpopular and unliked, that people like their choices. We found the opposite. We found that people appreciated that their employer was looking after their health and they understood the rationale and we did not get complaints. We actually got gratitude for this intervention. Dr. Alyssa Apple, thank you so much for telling us about this fascinating research on the People's Pharmacy today. Thank you so much, Terry and Joe. You've been listening to Dr. Alyssa Apple. She's a professor in the Department of Psychiatry at the University of California, San Francisco. Her research aims to elucidate mechanisms of healthy aging and to apply this basic science to scalable interventions that can reach vulnerable populations. She's the director of the Aging Metabolism and Emotion Center and of the Consortium for Obesity Assessment Study and Treatment. In addition, Dr. Apple is associate director of the Center for Health and Community. After the break, we'll talk with a father-son research team about how sugar affects our brains. How do the different parts of your brain interact in decision-making? Doctors in training may have a hard time following a healthy lifestyle. What could they learn from that experience? Could heavily advertised foods hijack children's brains? We'll find out whether and how you could clean your brain instead of being brainwashed. You're listening to The People's Pharmacy with Joe and Terry Graydon. This People's Pharmacy podcast is brought to you in part by Verisana.com. Verisana Lab offers home health tests that allow you to monitor your hormones and health conditions. 
you can take control of the quantitative assessment of your health and learn about male and female hormone balance, the stress hormone cortisol, leaky gut, gluten intolerance, or your gut microbiome. Take a more active role in tracking your health and take 20% off your first order of a mail-in testing opportunity with the discount code PEOPLE. That's uppercase P-E-O-P-L-E. To learn more, go to verisana.com. That's V-E-R-I-S-A-N-A dot com. The People's Pharmacy Podcast is supported in part by Cocovia. Cocovia cocoflavanols support both cardiovascular health and cognitive function by promoting healthy blood flow. That transports oxygen and nutrients to vital organs and muscles, including your heart and brain. Cocovia now comes in an even more concentrated formula with 450 milligrams of cocoflavanols, five times more than the leading dark chocolate bar, and 15 times more than the leading cocoa powder. Cocovia has a proprietary process that preserves cocoflavanols at the highest levels. The product undergoes rigorous testing at every stage to guarantee the highest level of cocoflavanols per serving and to provide the purest, highest quality product possible. People's Pharmacy listeners can now try Cocovia for 25% off by using the code PEOPLES25 at cocovia.com. Welcome back to The People's Pharmacy. I'm Terry Graydon. And I'm Joe Graydon. The People's Pharmacy is brought to you in part by Kaya Biotics, probiotic products made in Germany from certified organic ingredients. K-A-Y-A Biotics.com. And by Cocovia, the maker of high-potency cocoflavanol supplements that support cognitive and cardiovascular health. More information at Cocovia.com. Today, we're talking about the impacts of sugar on our health. How does sugar affect our ability to make rational decisions? To answer that question, we have two guests, a father and son pair. Dr. David Perlmutter is a board-certified neurologist and best-selling author. He serves on the board of directors and is a fellow of the American College of Nutrition. His books include Grain Brain and Brain Maker, and the most recent, Brain Wash, Dr. Austin Perlmutter is board-certified in internal medicine and co-authored Brainwash. Welcome to the People's Pharmacy, Dr. David Perlmutter. Delighted to be here. Thanks for having me. And welcome to you, too, Dr. Austin Perlmutter. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Dr. David Perlmutter, you are, by training, a neurologist. Therefore, you're very interested in things that fascinate me as a pharmacologist, neurotransmitters, hormones, how they work together to help us, you know, stay healthy, avoid depression, deal with things like anxiety, making good decisions. I wonder if you could just briefly give us an overview of our three brains. I will. And uh, what what a great opening, because it does set the stage for a bit of complexity that can seem to many people to be a bit daunting. Uh, And and really what we set forth to do is to make it a little bit more understandable in trying to understand how we have one brain that is the adult in the room, this prefrontal cortex, sort of uh, running the show most of the time, we hope, as compared to more primitive brain centers. Now, to be sure, there's a lot of anatomy that's involved here. But for purposes of simplification, we talk about this prefrontal cortex and we talk about the other area called the amygdala. Again, other areas are involved. And these areas are kind of segregated in our minds to represent more thoughtful decision-making, more looking at the future and the terms of the prefrontal cortex versus decision-making that is far more impulsive that would be derived from activity of this lower brain center called the amygdala. Well, before you go any further, for people who are not that familiar with neuroanatomy, can you explain where the prefrontal cortex is and how it works? 
Sure. So this prefrontal cortex area is basically the brain part that's behind your forehead. And it is really quite a gift that we as humans have such a large prefrontal cortex. It happens to be the area that subserves things like cognitive empathy, being able to see things from another person's perspective, in addition to things I just mentioned, like being able to think about the future consequences of the decisions that we make today. Now, this amygdala area is in the more primitive part of the brain. And if you had to uh, point to where it is, you'd be pointing on both sides to basically the part of your head that's inside your ears, maybe a little up from that. Uh, and, and, you know, I don't want to right off the bat castigate this amygdala because there is a time when an impulsive decision is the right decision, when we need to do things very, very quickly without having to think about the fact that in the rearview mirror, for example, we noticed a kid on, on her tricycle. We don't want to have to think about making the right decision here. Fortunately, the amygdala paves the way for that instantaneous decision that happens, and after the fact, we recognize that it occurred. But by and large, for our day-to-day decision-making about our lifestyle choices, about what's good for us, what's not good for us, and certainly what's good for our neighbors, uh, these are activities that are more uh, derived from activity of the prefrontal cortex, again, that area behind the forehead. So we slam on the brakes without even thinking because we saw the child on the tricycle. What about, oh man, look at those beautiful chocolate clusters. They're calling out to me. They look so attractive. I just can't resist. Is that a amygdala thing or is that the prefrontal cortex? Well, no, if you can't resist, that's amygdala. And But the fact that you had so much time just now, Joe, to explain that is a world of time available for you to have brought on the prefrontal cortex to the decision-making table. It's, you're well beyond the instantaneous foot to the brake to stop the car. Now you're at a place where you're weighing the value of this decision. Do I eat whatever it is you're thinking you should eat, the chocolate clusters, or do you begin to cogitate on the fact that, hmm, this has got a lot of sugar, it's late in the day, there's caffeine, I'm really trying to do better, and that's the focal point of our decision-making. That's the pivot point. It's where we want to try to emphasize bringing to bear higher-level thinking to make better decisions. Well, I think we all recognize that we probably shouldn't eat the chocolate clusters, especially not late in the day. That's true. But yet we do. (laughs) And And we we all do it. And the problem with that, Terry, is that it's When we do it, then we point fingers at ourselves. There's so much self-blame involved here because it is the wrong decision. We darn well know it, but we we virtually cannot help ourselves. And, you know, what Austin and I set out to do early on was to try to uh, understand our patients in terms of why they were making bad decisions. We were doing our best to learn as much medical information as is humanly possible then doing our best with the skills that we have to transmit that information to our patients. And lo and behold, the breakdown was occurring not in steps one and two, but in step three, which is the patient then acting on that information. And no one ever addressed that. And we realize now that between 50 and 80% of this information that we as healthcare providers are imparting upon our patients is never acted upon. And that's a huge breakdown. And and Dr. David Perlmutter, you actually don't have to just look at patients. You had the, a direct experience yourself of overlooking the importance of good sleep, good diet, um, time to reflect quietly, etc. While you were in residency, right? What happened? That's that's so true, and I would probably challenge every uh, individual who goes through a residency program to look at what happened to him or her. And Austin uh, has written about this as well. And that is, we are challenged in terms of threatening to disconnect us from the prefrontal cortex by the very fact that we're not getting uh, restorative sleep, that we're eating 
uh, foods that are pro-inflammatory in the hospital, that we are exposed day in and day out to very high levels of stress that further disconnects us from the prefrontal cortex and couple that with the the gravity of the decisions that you as a medical resident are faced with every single day. You know, these are indeed life and death decisions. And truly, your accessibility to the better decision-making part of your brain is compromised by the la- the very lifestyle that is imparted upon you by virtual, virtue of being in your me- uh, residency program. Well, Dr. Austin Perlmutter... I'd like to get your sense of how early this, what you have referred to as hijacking, occurs, starting with our children. The idea that television commercials, ads for unhealthy food, they're all kind of encouraging us to eat a lot of sugar and refined carbohydrates. So we become, I don't know if you want to say addicted to them, but we love them. And I wonder how that affects development of our children's brains. Well, this is such a phenomenal question. And I think that the first thing to understand is this idea that we are fully in charge of our decisions is kind of a facade. If you look at how children develop, we don't allow children to get behind the wheel of a car until they're 16, 15 years old. We don't allow people to make decisions as to whether they're allowed to drink alcohol until they're 21. And there's a reason for this. It's because the brain isn't capable of making these more complex decisions. And yet, despite this, we allow marketers to market to children. This is a billion and billions of dollar a year industry in order to change their decision making preferences. So what we see is when these children are exposed to messages that teach them they should be eating these junk foods, that's actually going to contribute to conditions like obesity and inflammation. And what we know is that these are states where people are unable to make the same level of good decisions. Specifically, inflammation seems to mediate people's inability to make future-oriented decisions. So think about this system. We're exposing children to messages, which, yes, they work. Marketing to children works. That's why people spend billions a year on it which then promotes their eating foods that increases inflammation and then fosters a lifetime of making poor decisions. And as my dad has already mentioned, we then blame people for their lack of willpower. So it's really not fair. It sounds to me as though kids are being brainwashed. So are we all. Well, uh, you know, you can use that word brainwash in a positive way as well to uh, wipe the slate clean and recognize that... uh, you know, it's time to start over again and reconnect. And, you know, what Austin just said was really uh, impactful, that this inflammation that is fostered by the foods that kids think they need or should eat sets the stage for a lifetime moving forward of further bad decision-making. It becomes quite literally a feed-forward, excuse the pun, cycle, whereby inflammation fosters disconnection, And this disconnection fosters bad decision-making, which further leads to more inflammation. Dr. Austin Perlmutter, we can imagine Brainwash, your book that you and your father have written, as a way of an instruction on how to clean your brain and get it nice and ready to go. So why do we need to wash our brains and how do we do that? Well, I would argue the reason we need to wash our brains comes down to most people not doing too well in the modern world. We think that despite having all these food options available, all these people around us, constant access to digital media, we should be happy, we should be healthy. And yet the statistics clearly show otherwise. And so in this case, we need to ask, how can we make changes? And what we describe is that changes need to happen when it relates to better decision making. So the question then is, how do we set up our brains for better decision-making? And part one is to understand where things have gone wrong. It's taking away as much as you can chronic stress. It's getting good sleep. It's lowering the amount of inflammation you're exposed to, primarily by making dietary changes. 
And then part two is incorporating new aspects, things like nature exposure, which has been shown to improve decision-making, which has been shown to lower inflammation, to lower levels of subjective stress, as well as levels of cortisol measured in the saliva. It's also understanding that we can leverage um, aspects of lifestyle modification like meditation, mindful behaviors that actually connect us to the parts of the brain, activate the parts of the brain that enable us to make good choices. This is the same with exercise, and certainly listeners know that exercise is a good thing. There aren't a ton of people on podcasts saying exercise less, but it turns out that exercise lights up the part of the brain that enables us to make good choices. And furthermore, it increases this BDNF, this brain-derived neurotrophic factor, which, as my dad has said, is like miracle grow for the brain, and then solidifies the connections in the brain that enable us to continue making good choices. So what we're talking about here is we need to get off of this spiral of making bad choices and onto this new cycle of making good choices. And it all starts with just a little crack in the door. So it's finding one of these interventions, which has been scientifically shown to improve decision making such that you continue to make good decisions and therefore reach those outcomes we care about, which is a life of more vibrant well-being, which is a life of more lasting happiness and health. Well, let me ask you about a couple of interesting studies that have come to our attention recently. One was published in PLOS, the Public Library of Science Medicine, a short time ago in early February of 2020. And this was an evaluation of Chile's law of food labeling and advertising on sugar-sweetened beverage purchases. Chile evidently passed uh, a law in uh, maybe 2015, to say that um, foods that are highly processed and full of sugar need to have warning labels on them. And what these researchers found was that that indeed affected the purchase of highly sugar-sweetened processed foods. People bought a lot less of them. So that is an interesting situation. And we have also spoken with a researcher who was involved in um, looking at the results of taking sugary beverages out of vending machines on the medical campus at the University of California, San Francisco. And they found that when people didn't have sugary beverages easily available, they drank less of them. Doesn't seem like rocket science, but it is kind of interesting. This is Austin. I think the points you make here are are so important to understand. We know that the ease of access to unhealthy foods is going to contribute to conditions like obesity. Uh, that's not too shocking. And we understand that of the 1.2 million foods that they examined in American grocery stores, 68% of them have added sugars and sweeteners. So the default state for food and drink is that they're not really good for us. No one needs that extra sugar in their food and beverages. And I think we've for too long assumed that people are capable of making the healthier decision without outside intervention. And this is why fields like behavioral economics have come into play here. It's understanding that we need to make the unhealthier options a little bit harder to access and the healthier options a little bit easier to access. There's been a lot of talk about taxes, some of which has been pro, some of which has been anti in the United States at least. But it seems practical that we should at the very least allow consumers to make an educated choice about what is or isn't good for them. I don't think there's a lot of argument at this stage that anyone needs more sugar in their diet. So why wouldn't we let people know that a beverage with added sugar, which is linked to higher rates of obesity, higher rates of diabetes, higher rates of developing conditions like cardiovascular disease, isn't maybe in their best interest. There have been studies done at Google where they've done a a traffic light system where they do red, yellow, and green that allow people to know whether something they're consuming is generally good for them. And they've found that that actually improves the likelihood that they would choose the healthy products. So sometimes it is just a little bit of a nudge in the right direction, to use a a Richard Thaler term, which enables people to make a healthier choice. And in the, the large scale, 
when we apply these types of nudges or when we apply these types of uh, information uh, interventions to populations, what you're going to see is lower rates of these debilitating diseases that are costing our country so much money and that are leading to the top rates of mortality and morbidity of any condition in the United States. You're listening to Dr. David Perlmutter. His books include Grain Brain and Brain Maker and the most recent Brain Wash. Dr. Austin Perlmutter is an internist and co-authored Brain Wash. After the break, we'll learn if we can get our brains back in balance. What can we learn from the story of Phineas Gage? There are some simple steps we could take to overcome the disconnect of sugary foods in the supermarket and foods we actually should eat. We'll also find out what the Perlmutters put in their shopping carts. You're listening to The People's Pharmacy with Joe and Terry Graydon. The People's Pharmacy podcast is sponsored in part by Kaya Biotics. K-A-Y-A Biotics offers the first probiotics, which are both certified organic and hypoallergenic. All probiotics are produced in Germany under laboratory conditions with high-quality ingredients and under strict regulatory oversight. The three available formulas are created for very specific purposes, such as strengthening the immune system, fighting yeast infections, and helping with weight loss. To learn more about Kaya Biotics probiotics and the important topic of gut health, you can visit their website, kayabiotics.com. That's K-A-Y-A biotics.com. Use the discount code PEOPLE for $10 off your first purchase. Welcome back to The People's Pharmacy. I'm Terry Graydon. And I'm Joe Graydon. The People's Pharmacy is brought to you in part by Verizona, an analytical laboratory providing home health tests for hormones, gut health, and the microbiome. Online at V-E-R-I-S-A-N-A dot com. And by Cocovia, maker of high-potency cocoflavanol supplements that support cognitive and cardiovascular health. More information at Cocovia.com. We're talking today about how sugar can subvert our ability to make wise health decisions. But brains are surprisingly resilient. Are there strategies to restore balance to this critical organ? Our guests are a father and son duo who co-authored the current book, Brainwash. Dr. David Perlmutter is a board-certified neurologist and best-selling author. He serves on the board of directors and is a fellow of the American College of Nutrition. His books include Grain Brain and Brain Maker, as well as Brainwash. Dr. Austin Perlmutter is board certified in internal medicine. Dr. David Perlmutter, once our brain has been hijacked, per- perhaps by our diet, our lifestyle, the level of stress in our, in our life, can it ever return to balance? And I wonder if you could share the famous story of Phineas Gage <laughs> and how we can learn from that experience. Yes, and, and so the answer to your question is, can it recover? Absolutely, that's why we're here today. Phineas Gage in 1858 was uh, working on the railroad and an iron rod uh, hit a, an explosive charge and was driven through his basically through his prefrontal cortex. So, you know, we're talking about all the lifestyle issues that may threaten our connection to the prefrontal cortex. Phineas Gage lost that connection uh, in a millisecond. And immediately he was irreverent. He was, uh, had no respect for others and really was, uh, you know, just changed dramatically in terms of his demeanor. But many people know this story. It's it's a fairly common story to talk about the functionality of the prefrontal cortex. His skull is still on display at Harvard School of Medicine with the as an instructive uh, event with, again, reference to the prefrontal cortex. But what we brought to light was the interesting part of the story of Phineas Gage years later. He regained his social graces. He became an amiable chap. Uh, he ended up running a stagecoach 
uh, in Chile. And the, the, we brought this information to light because it is a dramatic illustration of what is called neuroplasticity, the ability of the brain to rewire itself once those activities are, are pursued. You know, the Dalai Lama said that the brain we develop reflects the life we lead, meaning that when we do things, the brain will adapt and slowly wire itself in favor of those activities, which is why we are calling for simple steps one at a time to regain our connection to the prefrontal cortex. The more we regain that connection, the better moving forward will our decision-making be, especially as it can relate to other activities that can further enhance this, uh, this reconnection. And, you know, I, I wanted to mention one other thing, at least, uh, you know, Terry, uh, an area of your interest is medical anthropology uh, uh, idea, idea related to our sugar consumption. It is a powerful hack. We all have a sweet tooth. It's not something we'll ever get rid of because it was a survival mechanism for our ancestors, indicating that fruit was ripe, that fruit had its highest nutritional content, and further that that fruit that we would consume ripened at the end of the summer and the early fall would stimulate insulin, of course, as a response to the sugar, which then led to our production of body fat, allowing us to survive during times of caloric scarcity. So we all have the sweet tooth. It's a survival mechanism. But that, as Austin said, has become a powerful hack, is the reason that we have 68% of the foods in the grocery store uh, containing added sugar. Well, the, the toolkit that was a survival mechanism back when we were hunting and gathering is, is now kind of a disadvantage when we have supermarkets full of sugary foods. So you have suggested that there are simple steps that we can take to overcome this disconnect. Would you please outline them for us? Sure, Austin and I will go. We'll go through them, and uh, you know, again, we're looking for an on ramp that is personalized. What might be, for example, your biggest uh, lever to pull that can help you towards better decision making? And believe it or not, uh, it may surprise you. My, out of the box, I'm not going to say change your diet, and I'm not going to say start an exercise program because we know that's the the failure point for many people. What I would suggest right off the bat is to look at the quality and quantity of your sleep. Sleep quality and quantity turn out to, to does turn out to be about the biggest influence moment to moment on your decision making apparatus. Just one night of non restorative sleep has been shown to amplify the amygdala activity by as much as sixty percent. That is impulsivity. That is. Uh, choosing the wrong food, choosing the wrong activities that next day. So I would submit that uh, step one should be pay attention to the quality and quantity of sleep that you're getting. Look at your sleep hygiene. Recognize that you should probably not be looking at your computer screen or other screens at nighttime because of how the blue light that's generated from those screens does affect uh, your ability to fall asleep. Look at the time of day when you have your last cup of coffee. When was your last food consumption prior to going to bed? And indeed, what time of day did you choose to exercise? This is Austin. I wanted to jump on there. So there are a lot of things we talk about in the book. And the, the real key to this is not that you have to do every single one of these things. It's to say, how do you get from where you are to a better place? How do you get from the version of you that continues to feel a failure for not making good choices to opening that door just to crack and starting to see what it's like to make better choices? And the things we describe in addition to sleep include nature, include exercise, include certain dietary patterns, include a better understanding of how to use digital technology so that it's not using you, as well as meditation, and then finally connecting in interpersonal dynamics. So meaning strengthening your relationships with the friends, family, and even strangers in your life, such that you're now benefiting and they will benefit too. We describe an, uh, a mnemonic that people can use, an acronym 
so that they can have better control over their digital interactions. We call it the test of time. It basically means when you are engaging with digital technology, TV, computer, otherwise, make sure that it's time-restricted, that's the T, make sure it's intentional, that's the I, make sure it's mindful, the M, and then E is for enriching. You really want to make sure that you are coming out of it with a net benefit as opposed to what seems to be the case so often these days is you finish up whatever you were doing and say, I really could have used that time in a better way. I've got a question for you, Dr. Austin Perlmutter, because... You grow up with a father who was very interested in nutrition and how food affects the brain in particular, but our bodies as well. And then off you go to medical school and you are a, an internist. I'm wondering about the potential conflict that you ran into as a medical student and perhaps as a resident in terms of your learning about nutrition in your traditional studies versus what you learned at home, because it's our understanding that medicine, even today in the 21st century, has not put a lot of emphasis on, on the nutritional aspects of food, that, that we're still, you know, that's kind of secondary, that you know, you're learning how to diagnose, you're learning how to treat a lot of conditions, but this fundamental issue of nutrition, somehow it's still not the main event. Am I wrong about that? Well, you're wrong in saying it's not the main event. I'd say it's a non-event in many of these cases. Um, we learn in traditional medical training how to treat deficiencies. We're looking out, you know, scurvy or vitamin B1 deficiency. And when it comes to recommendations we're making to our patients, the information isn't just outdated. It's just not consistent with what's actually helpful. The pamphlets, I remember in one clinic I was handing out to patients, were recommending that they eat more opossums. Let me pause there for a second. Uh, yes. Wait, wait, wait. Opossums? More? Or opossums, depending more? if you pronounce the O. <laughs> more opossums? Who, right. Who I, I usually recommend less. Opossum? <laughs> well, so this is what I'm saying. This is the state of the nutrition recommendations that we're supposed to hand out to our patients. And it's so far away from what we actually understand about diet. You know, the thing about modern medicine as it's traditionally taught is it's really good at managing acute problems. Infl inflammation, not so much, but in infections. That's great. If you break an arm and go into the ER, that's great. And so when you're looking at these chronic diseases that are caused by a lifetime of poor choices, we don't really have much to offer. It's certainly not the structure of a 15-minute patient visit to be able to diagnose why people are making poor decisions. I would say my own interest in this whole nutrition paradigm is, well, so there's the academic piece in understanding how the different aspects of our macro micronutrients interface with our body and our physiology. That's fascinating. But what I think is more important to understand is how these things affect our decision-making and subsequently how that impacts the outcomes we care about. Because it's one thing to tell a person to eat less carbohydrates. It's another thing to tell a person, you know, try the carnivore diet, try a vegan diet. But what we need to be looking at is the long-term outcomes. And so that's why it's so important to understand how do these different dietary patterns affect our brains, affect our physiology such that we can continue to make good decisions and make good decisions in other environments and other parts of our lives. So maybe it's not just making good food decisions, but it's making good financial decisions. It's making good decisions as it relates to the people we spend time with. And as it pertains to that, then we're talking about making very basic changes in your diet to lower inflammation, which again has been shown to predict more impulsive decision-making. Dr. David Perlmutter, you have talked a lot about dietary patterns. And, uh, you know, I always like to pretend that I'm following one of our guests through the supermarket. So if I were following you on your quest to have really healthy dietary patterns in your home, and perhaps you too, as the son of the famous grain brain doctor... Um, Dr. Austin Perlmutter, if I were to follow you through the supermarket, what would I see in the cart and what wouldn't I see? 
Well, this is David. Uh, the first thing you would notice is that we are shopping the periphery. We're not going down the main aisles uh, with uh, uh, the targeted foods. And we would be buying foods in the cart that are basically unpackaged for the most part. And, you know, my uh, dietary recommendations and for both myself and outreach uh, have changed through the years, becoming more and more involved in recognizing the value of a more vegetarian-based program. Uh, you know, there was a time when Grain Brain was thought to be uh, like an Atkins redux. And the reality is that I think what we need to nurture in our bodies is, number one, of course, we need the macronutrients, but number one seems to be we've got to nurture our gut bacteria. We call this the microbiome. And the way that we do that is by making sure we've get, we're getting plenty of dietary fiber. That's what our little bacteria need. So more and more color in the vegetables and lots and lots of fiber. And truthfully, uh, less and less, as the years go by, animal-based protein. This is Austin. Uh, so I came into this whole world of nutrition in the last, let's say, 10 or so years through my medical training, as well as through my exposure to what my dad has done before. One thing I find when it comes to making dietary recommendations is that while people love to get really specific, that's not what's helpful for the average person trying to make improvements. So what I recommend to people is actually what I do, which is buying a bunch of colorful and dark leafy vegetables. Just starting with that, that's the base to all of our meals, and then adding in healthy fats. So I drink a lot of olive oil, eat a lot of avocados, and then adding in the preferentially healthiest of the uh, animal proteins, which for me is mostly small fish in addition to occasionally salmon, um, because these tend to be those that are highest in the essential fatty acids that we know are important to our physiology. And, you know, beyond that, it's, as my dad said, trying to find single ingredient foods and avoiding additives. That turns out to be so essential. So what I recommend to people, again, what I do is read the labels, look and see if there are added sugars. You would be shocked at how much of the time people are sneaking in these sugars. And the first step in creating a healthy diet is just knowing what you're eating. So having some understanding of when people are adding these unhealthy sugars to your food is going to go so far in enabling you to start making these changes to lower inflammation in your diet. And then pick out ingredients that you know about. So if it's kale, it's kale. If it's organic, that's wonderful. It doesn't have to be. I think that people get stuck on all these details. Yes, if you can afford organic, if you can find organic, if it's available to you, fantastic. But far better that you're eating a, a standard conventional kale than picking out some packaged food that has a bunch of additives. Dr. Joe, let me add one last thing, if I may. This is uh, David. Right. If you and I are standing in front of the grocery store, we have the cart, we're ready to go in, I would challenge you. I, I would say, Joe, what is it that we're trying to accomplish here? What is this food? Why are we eating food? And I think your your response would be, well, we need fat, carbohydrates, and protein, and nutrients, yes. But I would also challenge you to consider, before we go on our shopping spree, that food is information, that food is a powerful influence that we control over our genetic expression, that the genes that control, that deal with health and longevity, 90% uh, of them are under our control based upon our choices, and food seems to be one of the biggest leverage points that we have in controlling and manipulating our genetic destiny. Dr. David Perlmutter, Dr. Austin Perlmutter, thank you both so much for talking with us on The People's Pharmacy today. Well, thank you for having us and a terrific conversation. Thank you, Terry and Joe. You've been listening to Dr. David Perlmutter, a board-certified neurologist and best-selling author. He serves on the board of directors and is a fellow of the American College of Nutrition. His books include Grain Brain and Brain Maker and the most recent Brainwash. We also spoke with Dr. Austin Perlmutter who specializes in internal medicine and co-authored Brainwash. Lynn Siegel produced today's show, Al Wadarski engineered, Dave Graydon edits our interviews. The People's Pharmacy is produced at the studios of North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC. This week, the show was recorded from our home studio.
The People's Pharmacy theme music is by B.J. Lederman. The People's Pharmacy is brought to you in part by Verizana, an analytical laboratory providing home health tests for hormones, gut health, and the microbiome. Online at V-E-R-I-S-A-N-A dot com. And by Cocovia, offering plant-based nutrients in the form of cocoflavanols for brain and heart health. Online at Cocovia.com. Also by Kaya Biotics probiotic products made in Germany from certified organic ingredients. K-A-Y-A-Biotics.com. To buy a CD of today's show or any other People's Pharmacy broadcast, you can call 800-732-2334. Today's show is number 1,216. The number again, 800-732-2334, online at peoplespharmacy.com. When you visit the site, you can share your thoughts about today's show. You could also subscribe to the podcast. You can also sign up for our free online newsletter to get the latest news on COVID-19 and other important health stories. In Durham, North Carolina, I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. Thank you for listening. And please join us again next week. Thank you for listening to the People's Pharmacy Podcast. It's an honor and a pleasure to bring you our award-winning program week in and week out. But producing and distributing this show as a free podcast takes time and costs money. If you like what we do and you'd like to help us continue to produce high-quality, independent healthcare journalism, please consider chipping in. All you have to do is go to peoplespharmacy.com slash donate. Whether it's just one time or a monthly donation, you can be part of the team that makes this show possible. Thank you for your continued loyalty and support. We couldn't make our show without you.